And we've been talking about uh, what our purpose is, why we're here as a church, why we're here on this earth, why God, what purpose God has for your life. And there are many individual aspects of that purpose. But the main purpose for which you're here, which is very clear from the Word of God, is we're here to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And we spent a good part of this year going over what that means. We've looked at what the gospel is, and we've been looking for some time at now. What does it mean to preach? Because it doesn't just mean to stand behind a pulpit, because that's kind of the image that, that the world has. And I'm by that the church has of, of the ministry. The ministry is the professional person, whether they have a collar turned backwards or not. Uh, it's that we pay the professional to do the ministry, and we come and receive from that ministry. And we see it as a profession, just as any other profession. And it's not, because the Word of God teaches that in Ephesians chapter 4, that the purpose of the ministry, what the world calls the ministry, is to equip the saints, and that's all of us, so that we would do the work of the ministry. And so we're all called into the ministry. The word ministry just means table waiter. We're all called to serve the Lord and, and allow Him to serve people through us and to carry out His will. That's the purpose for your life. That's why you exist. That's why God saved you because He loves you, but that's why you're still here. That's why we exist. And what we've learned is as we begin to get our lives in line with God's purposes and not our own purposes, then the blessings of God begin to, to, to work through us. As I was driving over this morning, I really felt the Holy Spirit drop in me uh, how to begin next year. We're going to begin to talk about first things first. The beginning of the year is a good time to talk about getting things in order. Because as we go about living our life, we, it's easy to get priorities out of order. And God has ordained certain priorities. And we get them in His order, not our order. We get them in His order. His life, His will, His blessing is able to flow in, through us and in our lives much better than we get things out of order. And we may chafe against God's order sometimes. We may not agree with God's order sometimes. It may not be politically correct sometimes. But God's still God. Nations have come and gone. Nations that thought they were going to rule the world forever for a thousand years, they've come and gone, and God's still here. Nietzsche about a hundred years ago said God was dead. God's still here. Nietzsche's dead. So don't, it doesn't pay to argue with God. It just pays to submit with Him and obey Him. And we're going to learn today why. Because He's a good God. He's a generous God. So what we've been looking at specifically is in how to preach the gospel. Jesus told His disciples, He said, You are to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, He said, Because then you are to go and be witnesses of me. And we've taken that and we misconstrued it to be something we're supposed to do. And I've showed you that in the original language, in the Greek, that word witness is a noun, not a verb. So it's something that we're to become, not something we're to do. And if you become it, you will automatically do it. But if we just see it as a task or an assignment, we can do that on Saturday morning or Friday night. We can do it at given periods of time and then go live our life the way we want to the rest of the time. But he said, you are to be witnesses of me. And so we've been looking at what does it mean to be a witness. And we saw that the greatest example of that was Jesus, because in John chapter 14, Jesus, as he was preparing his disciples for, for, for going to the cross and being raised from the dead, and basically turning the assignment over to them, as he was preparing for that, he said to them, he's talking about the Father, and Philip said in John 14, well, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. And Jesus said, don't you understand yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what a witness is. Jesus is saying, if you've seen, I'm the perfect witness of my Father. If you've seen me, 
You've seen Him. He said, the words that I spoke, they're not my words, but it's the Father working in me. And the works that I've done, the miracles, the preaching, all that I, everything I've done, it was the Father in me doing it. Because Jesus didn't do anything on His own. He didn't do anything in His own ability. He didn't do anything in His own power. And He did, didn't do anything to carry out His own will. He only did the things He saw His Father doing. And psychologists would have a field day with that by saying, you know, he had no personality, he had no sense of identity, and yet he was the most peaceful, successful man that's ever lived. So maybe our concept of success is wrong. Maybe our concept of individuality and success, personal happiness, is wrong. Maybe it's doing what Jesus did. In fact, it is. It is. It just it runs contrary to our flesh. And so, so that's what we're talking about. What is it, so we've been looking at what it is that Jesus witnessed about Him. What was it about the Father that He showed us that as we begin to get an understanding of who God the Father is and what He's like, then we can allow Him to be a witness of that in us. And we've talked, seeing that, prim, not primarily, the essence of what God is, is love. Above everything else, God is love. He doesn't have lots of love. He's not full of love. That's what He is. In fact, love is what God is. You don't define things and then attribute them to God. Their definition is God. For instance, truth is whatever God says. Truth is not some independent thing. You line up against God's Word to see whether He told the truth. God cannot lie because whatever God says, that makes it truth. My mother used to have an expression, for she wasn't God. But she says, if I call up, down, up, down, up, it's up. If I call black, white, it's white. Because what she's saying is, whatever I say goes in this house. But it was still black. It was still up. She couldn't change reality. She just tried to declare what reality was in our home. But when God says something, that makes it true. And so we have to learn to adjust ourselves to God. But then we begin to discover, well, what's God really like? And so what did Jesus reveal about Him? And so what we saw is, what, this, what is this love like? And we started with a story about uh, 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 the Good Samaritan. And the story which showed us basically the lawyer's question to Jesus when Jesus talked about loving your neighbor was, who is my neighbor? And what the lawyer was trying to find out is, what are the limits of this? What are the boundaries? What are the limits of my responsibility to love? And we saw Jesus told this simple parable about the Levite and the priest and then the Samaritan and the Levite and the priest crossed to the other side of the street they didn't want to have this needy man within their boundaries but the Samaritan crossed the street gave whatever was needed to, to meet this man's need and we saw that was a demonstration of what God's life is love is like it has no boundaries it has no limits and so really the title of this series mini series we've been going is boundless Love. God's love has no boundaries, no limitations. We looked in Ephesians chapter 3 where Jesus, Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus and therefore for the church in general that we would be strengthened by His Spirit in our inner man so that Christ might be able to dwell, live in us, live His life in us. Jesus wants to live His life in you and through you. So that we would strengthen, so we could, so that, that Christ could be, could be at home in us, dwell in us by faith, and that being rooted and grounded in love, we might come as the church together. Together we might come to know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. In other words, Paul's prayer was that through Christ living in us, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, we might come to realize what are the limits of this love of God and realize there are no limits. So that we may be filled up with all of the fullness 
of God. That's God's desire. That's His plan for the church to be a witness of Him. <clears throat> Excuse me, that we be filled up with all of His fullness. So that's what we've been talking about, and we begin to look at some of the what are the, what are what are the areas of limits that there could be, <clears throat> and we've seen that. Who does God love? Well, John 3.16, for God so loves the world. <clears throat> it's not the church. He loves the world. You wouldn't be in the church if He didn't love the world. He loves everybody. We, who will He save? We saw this parable of the lost sheep, where one, one out of a uh, hundred sheep got lost, and the shepherd went to find that sheep, even though that doesn't make sense. Why, you got 99 safe. Why, not, why go find the one? Because each one's valuable to Him. Each, you are valuable to Him. And we learn from that parable that Jesus is teaching that if you were the only one that He needed to come and die on that cross for, He still would have come and died just for you. If everybody else had it straight, everybody else was perfect and holy, and you're the only one that messed up, He still loves you so much individually, He would have come and it would have died for you. And then we looked at the story of the prodigal son. That's this different man. The, the, the sheep got lost, but the prodigal chose to go rebel and go his own way, to take whatever he thought he was entitled to and go make a life for himself. And we fall, saw how good a job he did, about as good a job as you or I do when we go take our life into our own hands. He ended up living in a pigsty, jealous of what the pigs were eating. And when he came to his senses, we saw the Father was already preparing for him, looking for him. The Father never stopped loving him. Even in the middle of the pigsty, the Father still loved him and was longing for him to come home. And the moment he decided to come home, the Father embraced him, cleaned him up. He didn't have to clean him up to get him back in the house. The Father put his robe on the dirty son and brought him back into his house and had a celebration for him. So we've seen that God's love loves everybody, that he will, there's no limit on who will save We've seen that there's no limit, and this is really what we're going to look at today, on who is love, who God will love. We've seen that He loves His enemies. In fact, we've discovered you and I were His enemies until we came to Christ, and yet He loved us enough that while we were still sinners, Romans uh, 5 verse 8 says, while He demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, God's Son, died for us. That's what we've celebrated this last weekend. He died for us, and it's the demonstration of God's love. Well, what we're going to begin to look at this morning is another aspect of this. This really all ties together. But we're going to look at because, because God is love, God is generous. And this will confront some of your religious training because our religious training tries to take man's idea of what God ought to be and put God in a box of what man thinks He ought to be. And this is why God gave us His Word, why God gave us the Word of God, because one of the purposes of the Bible is it's God's way of teaching us what He wants us to know about Him. He wants to reveal to us who He is. In fact, when I was praying at the beginning, I quoted a scripture which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says there's no way that your wisdom, man's wisdom, is ever going to know God. Because it's the foolishness of God that, 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 makes, that, that saves man. It's not the demonstration of the power of, of miracles, it's not, but it's the love of God and it's the revelation of God. And then, but in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul then says... But having come to Christ, there is a wisdom that God has for us, and that wisdom, wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit, because it says in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9, the eye, th the, the, the eye has not seen, and the ear has not heard, nor has it entered into hearts of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. In other words, God has things for us that your eyes haven't seen yet, that your ears have not heard yet. That means they're not of this realm, and that have never entered your heart. 
But it would it'd be bad if, if it just stopped there and says, God has surprises for you. He has wonderful things for you. Well, let's go on to the next subject. No, he says, but they're, but they're revealed to us by the Holy Spirit who searches even the depths of God's heart. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of God's heart to find the depths of God's heart for you. And then God's put His Spirit in us to reveal those things to us so that we would learn to enjoy them and walk in those things in this life. Not in the next life, but in this life. And so in order to do that, we have to renew our mind to what God is like. So we're going to look at this morning at this God that we serve, this God who has saved us, is a generous God. We're talking about what are the boundaries of His love. And there's no boundary, there's no limit on His generosity. There's no limit on His generosity. To do that, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. That shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis chapter 1. I didn't want to make it hard today. Genesis chapter 1, the very end of that chapter. Or you can go to Genesis chapter 2 and go back a verse. Genesis chapter 1, of course, is the story of God's creation. And this was God's idea. Man did not talk God into creating him. This is a profound thought. God, man, was God's idea. Before anybody existed, there was God, and God chose to create man. Kind. God chose to do that. That means He wanted us in existence. He has a purpose for us in existence. So man was God's idea. And He created everything in this universe for the benefit of man. And when he was finished creating, it says, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. God only makes things that are very good. And God made you. There was a child years ago, it was a very popular saying that came out of, the, out of I think it was New York City somewhere. It says, God don't make no junk. The grammar is not correct, but the theology is perfect. Now, we can make junk out of what God makes, but when God made it, that's what I want you to see here, God made it very good. Not just good, very good. Now we'll go over into, into um, chapter 2. And, and chapter 1 is the story of God's creation chronologically. Chapter 2 is the story of God's creation in importance. So in chapter 1, He creates God and man at the end in chapter because He created this place for man. Chapter 2 starts with God's creation of man and then goes into the animals and the rest of it because man is, and man is the only creation that's recorded in the Bible that says that we were made in God's image. The plants weren't made in God's image. The monkeys weren't made in God's image. The apes weren't made in God's image. The one-eyed newts weren't made in God's image. Nature wasn't made in God's image. Man is the only creation that the Bible says God made in His image. And He saw that it was good. Now He has this man and He realizes something that, wait a minute, 
And God obviously doesn't realize anything. He knows everything all at once. But I want you to show when God looks at this man, he, he sees something. And ladies, you're going to like this part. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. The word Eden means place of delight. So we're talking about what God's like. God's made this man. He didn't say, look, you need to learn a whole bunch of hard lessons. So I'm going to put you in a place where you've got to work hard. It's going to be difficult for you because you've got to learn, develop some strength and some internal intestinal fortitude. You gotta, no, he put him in a place of delight. Eden means a place of, of overwhelming delight, pleasure, enjoyment. See, God's not against enjoying things. God, as Pastor Sam, our founding pastor, used to say, God's not bathed in pickle juice. And He won't bathe you in pickle juice. The Bible says, In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy, not gloom. And so He made this as the place, and we're talking about what God's like, of, of overwhelming delight, and he, but He gave Him a job. He gave Him a job to tend it and to keep it. And we don't have time to look at the Scriptures, but that job was not a difficult job. Because there were no weeds. So he didn't have to pull... I hated pulling weeds. My mother was a horticulture. She could grow anything and grew everything. We had gardens and things like that. And our job as boy was to go... Oh. And I couldn't tell a weed from a rose. <laughs> nor did I care. In fact, I think sub subconsciously I was hoping if I pull up enough of her plants that she likes, maybe she won't send me out there. It didn't work. She started teaching me the difference between a weed and a flower, and I had, so we had to go learn, we had a, I, oh, it's under the curse, it really is, and we're not going to go into it, but weeds are under the curse. But they didn't have to weed it because there were no weeds. Also, they didn't have to water it because we're not going to have time to look at the scriptures, but in the morning there was a, a mist that rose, like a fog, and it settled on it. So all they had to do was kind of watch over it and, and oversee it. So it wasn't hard. The hard work started when they rebelled, when the curse came in the land. But when God made it, there was no curse. There was no curse. It was a, it was a job. Everything, everything flowed with them to carry out this job. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about all of creation groans and travail. Groans all of creation. He's talking about the material realm, the earth, the sky, the, 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 all of it is groaning inside. It's struggling under the weight of the curse of sin, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God, waiting for when Christ comes back, we get our new body and God replaces this, or reforms this whole thing again. But until then, there's a curse on this land. Why? Because unfortunately there's chapter 3 when they disobey God. But when God made it, there was no curse. It was a place of blessing. But it gets even better, ladies. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. See, man's idea of God is he's very strict. You can only do certain things. God doesn't want you to have fun and enjoy things. No, God made it. says, It's full of trees and fruit and blessing. Have at it. In fact, some translation says God commanded them to enjoy it. All God says is there's one tree you can't eat of. Just one. And part of the purpose of that was to remind them they owned nothing. They were stewards over it. But the tree God told them they couldn't eat of, there was actually two. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor can you eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because God did not design man to handle on his own 
the knowledge of good and evil. And if you're not sure of that, just start reading the morning newspapers, looking at news, and you'll see what kind of job we're doing of handling the knowledge of good and evil. God designed man to simply be obedient to Him, and if we're obedient to Him, He can handle the knowledge of good and evil, and then all the blessings of the good will flow into our lives. But they didn't do that, and of course we didn't do that either. So he goes on and says, having created everything, uh, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. And all the ladies said, Amen. I will make a helper comparable to him or helpful to him. And the Lord God, you know, so what he did is he looked at his situation and said, No, this isn't good enough for you. I want something better for you. It's not good that you should be alone. Now let me explain that. Adam, at, at that point, is made fully in God's image. And you may not have heard this before, but it'll tilt your brain a little bit, but it'll, it'll settle back down again. This first man had all the male qualities and female qualities. He was both masculine and feminine in his personality. Because God is everything. So the, the strong, determination, focused, hunter, you know, conqueror, that side of God, but there's a, there's a sensitive, tender side of God. There's a nurturing side of God. One of God's names, covenant names is El Shaddai, which means the many-breasted one. It's a nurturing, it's a covenant to caring for. So all of this was in that first man because he was made in the image of God. So this man was fat, dumb, and happy. I don't know if he was fat, but he was, he was content in himself because he was every, he was self-sufficient. Oh, this is good. And God's saying, it's not good for you to be self-sufficient. Oh. Here's what I'm going to do. So he caused the sleep to come on him, and he took a rib out. Actually, that word in Hebrew means half of him, a side. He took a side out, he took half of him out of it, and formed it into another being, woman. And then presented to him, and he went, wow, man. <laughs> So now you have this one being who has the male characteristics and he's now got part of him living in a separate human being with the other half of him, the female characteristics and God now says, work this out. Because what God is saying is when we're self-sufficient we don't have to adjust anybody, we're never going to grow. Marriage is designed so you can grow. Grow up, man. <laughs> If, we, if everybody agreed with me, and you see, if, if I'm living by myself, everybody agrees with me. I can squeeze the toothpaste where I want, I can put the toilet paper whether I want or not, I can clean the dishes if I, I can do what I want to do because I'm only one that I'm pleasing. But the moment I married her, I discovered my world changed. And now I had to do things that took her into consideration. And the more we've lived together and grown together, the more I've realized that's more and more and to the point that it's everything. It's literally a totally giving of yourself to each other, which you don't do if you're just by yourself. But my point is, God said, what I've created here, it's good, but it's not good enough. I want to get what's best. But sometimes when God says this is best, we don't understand why it's best because we were comfortable with what we had before. And God brings change into our lives and says, yeah, that's good, but you're getting too comfortable. Let's change some things in your life so that you'll come back to depending on me and not on what you're used to. Well, that's another message for another day. All right. 
Okay, now let's go over, we're going to go to, we're talking about God's character. So, he, but he, everything He does is good, it's generous. Let's go to Psalm 81. We don't have time to go through what's happened in between, but God came to a point where He decided, you know what, I need to have a people that, that has a relationship with me so that the world can understand what I'm like. So God decided to f- have a nation that was in relationship with Him. But He didn't pick an existing nation. Instead, He said, I'm going to start one of my own. So He chose a man named Abram, who was a moon worshiper. He lived in the city of Ur, which was the old Chaldean, the old Babylon. Babylon. And He chose this man and says, I'm going to choose you. And He revealed Himself to him and told him, leave your home, leave your family, leave where you are, and go to a place where I'm going to tell you when you get there. And then God began to reveal to him a covenant relationship. And he entered into a covenant relationship with him. And out of this man came a son, eyes out of his man, long story. Out of this man eventually came a nation, the nation of Israel. And by the way, Israel is not the name of a nation, it's the name of one of his grandsons. It's the name of, 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 name of his, his grandson who had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God has this nation now that He has a special relationship with. They end up in bondage in Egypt. That's a sto- different story. And now God's brought them out into the wilderness to bring them into a land, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, the challenge God had with this people when they came out of Egypt was to convince them that the place He was taking to them was a place of unlimited blessing. They're coming from a place of bondage in Egypt where they're, they're being fed. The food's being given to them every day. They're living off the state. But they're servants to the state. They've given their freedom up. And, and in, in exchange for those free leeks and onions, they're having to work terrible hours. They're having to, to, to work by the sweat of their brow. Now they cry out to God. God delivers them. And He's trying to get them from Egypt over to this land He's promised, flowing with milk and honey. And He's promised them, told them what's in there, but He's trying to get them to believe His promise because they don't really know Him yet. And so they're struggling. They keep, you know, they're headed towards Egypt, but the, uh, the promised land, but they keep looking back towards Egypt. When things get tough, they start longing for what things used to be like, and God's trying to get them in a place to bless them and prosper them and to cause them to grow and multiply. God's trying to bless them, and they're struggling with what they have and what they don't have. And when the you know, water looks like it's going to run out, they panic after three days and want to run back into Egypt. They get mad at their leader. They get mad at God. God turns the water into sweet water, causes a miracle to take place. Then God begins to drop free food out of heaven. When they complain about the food, God provides meat for them, quails. He's providing for them. Their clothes never wear out. They don't have to go to Walmart. They don't have to go to Macy's. Their clothes never wear out. He takes care of everything that they need every day, perfectly providing for them. And they complain, and they complain, and they complain. They keep wanting to go back to Egypt. Finally, God says, that's it. He gives them a taste of what the promised land's like, sends 12 spies in. They come back with a good report, but they won't believe the good report. They believe the bad report, and they say, well, this is too hard. And God says, that's it. You're going to have to stay here. I'll never get you in there. Because if I take you in there, you're going to want to come back again. So we've got to stay here in the wilderness until that whole generation that came out of Egypt died. It's not what God wanted to do. 
until this nation, that generation dies off and the next generation that wasn't raised in Egypt, that doesn't have the taste of the leeks and the onions in their memory, that generation I can get in there. Now, years later, the psalmist David, looking back at this, did I tell you Psalm 81? Okay. Uh, The psalmist David is recounting this under the anointing of the Spirit. We're talking about what God's like. This is what, this is what God wanted to do for Israel. This is what God wanted to do for Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. By the way, that's the very beginning of the, of, of what the, the law that God gave Moses on the mountain. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. Open your mouth what? Open your mouth what? And I will fill it. As wide as you open it, I will fill it. This does not sound like a God who's saying, you know, what is it that needs to sustain you? Here's a straw. Here, drink what you need out of the straw. You know, whatever it is you need to get by, I'm going to take care of that. He says, no, you open your wide. As wide as you open your mouth, I'll, I'll fill it. You expand your horizons. And he's not talking literally about, he's talking about the, the mouth of their mind. Open your mind wide to who I am and I'll fill you up. You put the limits on what God can do for you by what you're willing to believe. But it starts with knowing what God's like because if you don't believe God's like this, you won't dare to believe that. If you go with what religion has taught us and what people have taught us and who don't understand who God really is because they've not, they've not developed a relationship with God out of who God says He is, they've developed that out of what people told them we were. And once you get that mindset, you start reading this word that way. And you start only seeing things that tell you God's angry, God's this, God's that, God's that. And so this is what God says about Him. So open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Okay. Verse 11. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. This is God speaking his heart out after Israel has limited what he could do for them, rejected him even when they got in the promised land they did to some extent. God, this is God looking back saying, this is what I wanted to do for you. But my people would not listen to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their stubborn heart to walk in their own commands. There are times God will say, all right, if you're determined to go that way, go. Just see what you're going to do. The father let the prodigal leave his home because the prodigal son had made up his mind, I'm going to do what I want to do. And God won't override your will. Oh, He'll put pressure on it. He'll influence it. But if you determine, I'm going to go my own way, God will let you go your own way. He, won't, he will keep after you. He will, won't abandon you, but He'll let you go. If you determine, I'm going to go do what I want to do, God's going to say, all right, go at it, chum. Yep. See how well you make out. But He'll be with you. In fact, Psalm 139 says, He'll go right up to the gates of hell with you pleading with you. But if you want to go there, He won't stop you. He, won't, he doesn't want you to do. He'll send people. He'll do everything He can to influence you, but He will not override your will. And this is what Israel... Israel is an example to us. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own, count, in their own counsel, 
to walk in their own counsel, to walk in their own counsel. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Oh, look at the verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that they would just listen. Those of you that are parents, and you have a child growing up, and you see they start making choices, and you look at them and say, and you know, you fry. You tell them, it's not, don't do that. You know, don't stick your finger in that light socket. But they get older and the light sockets are bigger. And you say, don't do that. You need to be doing this. And there comes a point where you know they're not going to listen to you. But in your heart, you're, oh, if you just listen to me. If you just listen to me. This is what God's saying to Israel. If you would just have listened to my voice. This is what I wanted to do for you. We're talking about what God's like. Because you, you can't know what God's like by what happens in people's lives. Because we have something to say about it. He let Israel do what they wanted to do. So you couldn't look at Israel, that first generation, dying in the wilderness and say, God didn't care about them. He brought them out there to die. That's what they thought. But if you read the story, you find out that's not what God wanted at all. I've taught you this before. There's a whole part of the Christian church, and the real, I mean the real Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian church, that is convinced that whatever happens is God's will. And that just totally leaves the devil out, that there's no adversary out there. There's no consequence, there's no effect of sin. That I have, I have no, my will has nothing to do with what happens in my life. If I want to stick my light, finger in a light socket, that doesn't mean God's chosen for that to happen. That means I've chosen to do what my mother told me not to do. In the very garden we saw that. God didn't plan for them to do that. He knew they were going to, so He made provision for what they were going to do. But isn't what God wanted to do. He told them not to do it. So you can't look at people's lives. You can't look at whether somebody's healed or not healed, whether somebody's saved or not saved, whether somebody's being, prayers are getting answered or not. You can't look at the outward circumstances and decide what God's like because there's a lot out, any more than you can look at a car... <clears throat> that's 10 years old and find out what the manufacturer wanted that car to look like. It all depends what the owner's done with it. If you don't change your oil, you don't wax the car, if you, you know, whatever. If you just don't take care of it, it's going to begin to rust and break down. That doesn't mean that's what Ford intended for that car. If you want to know what Ford intended for that car, you've got to go look at what the original model looked like. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is. There's three places in the Bible where you can see God's will unaffected by man. Genesis 1 and 2, where God created to begin with. Jesus, when He walked on the earth, which is God walking on the earth, carrying out His will. And in the end, when God recreates it. If you want to know what God's perfect will is, look at those three places, and you'll find out what God, the way God wants things. In every other place, man's involved. Our will's involved. So God's saying here, oh, but just because they messed up, that's not what my heart was. Oh, but they would not listen to me. They would not walk in my ways. Verse 13. Verse 14. I would have subdued their enemies. I would have turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to Him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them. He would have fed them 
with the finest of wheat and honey from the rock, I would have satisfied you. They complained about the manna and the water. They complained about their diet. But God said, if you would have allowed me, if you would have listened to me, if you would have opened your mouth wide, this is what I wanted to do. I would have fed you with the finest of wheat, the finest of honey. That's what I wanted to do. But you limited the Holy One of Israel. You limited what I could do in your life. You limited my generosity in your life. I wonder when we get to heaven whether we're going to be shocked to see what God had for us that we passed by. And I'm not talking about houses and things like that. Those are fine. I'm talking about all kinds of other blessings. Just because we didn't... The Bible says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask for the wrong motives. God says, come and ask me. Matthew chapter 7, come and ask me. Dawned on me one night in prayer. God, why would God tell us to ask if He didn't plan to, to give? Why would He tell us to come and ask Him if He wasn't planning, didn't want to give? But God needs us to ask Him so He can do what He wants to do in our lives. He's generous. He's generous. He was generous with Israel. He wanted to be infinitely more generous. But Israel limited Him. He wanted to satisfy them. And only God can satisfy you. The food can't satisfy you. The pleasure of our flesh can't satisfy you. You just need more. You want more. What you had yesterday eventually doesn't satisfy, so you've got to have more. The alcohol can't satisfy you. The sex can't satisfy you outside of marriage. Nothing can satisfy you outside of God's way. It'll, it'll give you a temporary pleasure, but it's just to entrap you. It's the bait in a trap. It's the bait in a trap. All right. Let's go over to Romans. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter one. We're talking about how generous God is. What's God really like? Because in order to be a witness of Him, you have to see Him as He really is. Uh, this summer, I, when I would spend time in the morning, I would just go over these verses. I had to get them, sink, sink them in. We're learning on Wednesday nights how to meditate on the Word of God, how to, how to renew our minds, tools for renewing our mind. And this was one of the ones I did this summer. Blessed, we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who has. Now what tense is that? Past. Four of you passed English. <clears throat> I have suspect more of you did. It, it begins with a P. Past tense. That means it's something he has done. And actually in the Greek tense, because Greek has, has more than just past, present, and future. Greek has moods to it. This implies that it was done and it continues. It was something that started at a fixed period of time and it's something that continues on after that. Who has blessed us with how many? Every. How many? Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, if God has it, He's given it to you. If God has it, He has already given it to you in Christ. When He gave Christ to you, everything He had, He gave to you. He doesn't parcel this out. God doesn't do what we do. He doesn't have a trial period. You know, you sign up for something online, maybe it's a new service, you know, and you'll get this email that says, look, 30-day free trial. 
once they got you in their email system. 30-day free trial. And if you still like at the end of 30 days, unless you cancel it, it's yours. You got it, all right? God doesn't work that way. He doesn't have a probationary period. He doesn't look at you, and boy, He should with us. He doesn't look at us and say, you know what, all right, you've, you finally decide to give your life to me, but I know you don't really understand what you're talking about yet. I know you haven't really fully committed to me yet. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's put you on probation for a period of time. And I'll see and test you whether you really mean what you say. I'll see and test you whether you really mean you love me. So I'm going to give you some tests. So we'll take a year's period and we'll put you on probation. So at the end of that year, if you've proven yourself enough, I'm going to move you to the next level of trust. I'm going to give the next level of benefit. No, 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 no. In fact, if you read this carefully, if we went on and read it, God gives this to you before the world was formed. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Go to verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him. Jesus said in John chapter 15 to His disciples, You didn't choose Me. I chose you. Realize you didn't choose God. He chose you. You couldn't choose Him unless He chose you. Your choice of Him was a response to the opportunity He gave you when He chose you. And He chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you'd done anything right or wrong, He chose you. Knowing what you were going to do, right or wrong. Realize this, when He chose you, He knew everything you were ever going to do, everything you were going to think, everything you were going to say. He knew every mistake you were going to make, He knew every sin you were going to commit, and He still chose you. Sometimes people apply for a job and they fill out an application or they do a resume and of course they train you when you do a resume is to make yourself look as attractive as possible but not too attractive so they think you made it look too much. So you, 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 you say things a certain way and they want because you, you know you're, somebody looks at that resume and I don't even know how they do it now, now it's probably all done online and, and so because they want you, you want to present your so you, you, you know, present your best foot forward you want to look the best for them and so that you know because but your, back in the mind is if they really knew some things about me, they might not hire me. God knew everything about you when He chose you. He knows things about you you don't know. He knows things that are down in your heart, attitudes in your heart you haven't seen yet. And if, if you've seen them now, He knows ones you're going to have this year that you still don't, haven't had yet. He still knows them. And He still chose you. He chose you in Him, that's the key, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. He didn't choose you to make, so that you would learn how to be holy and without blame. He chose to make you holy and without blame before Him in Christ. In love He did this. What motivated Him is all we're talking about. What motivated Him to do this, the only thing that motivated God to do this, He wasn't under obligation. He wasn't, he didn't, was just, wasn't having a wonderful day and felt good. He, he, it was what His love is like. His love gives everything. Next verse. Having predestined. Don't get hung up with that word. He just means He planned ahead of time. This Christmas has been wonderful. We've had all our family in. We planned ahead of time. My wife went shopping for stuff weeks ago. So it's just planned ahead of time for to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Now, see, we use the term, well, you know, I, I'm saved. God saved me. 
And what we mean by that is God saved me from the consequences of my sin so that I don't have to go to hell. Instead, I have a, I, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And if, if that's all God did, we would be eternally grateful. If you ever got a glimpse of hell, and there's scriptures in there that give us a little glimpse of it, you would be so thankful that you're not going to go to hell. Regardless of what heaven's like, you'd be thankful you're not going to go to hell. But God doesn't do the bare minimum. God doesn't do, you know, what's the, what's the least I have? Remember the Good Samaritan? God doesn't say, what's the least I have to do? Remember, this is God's idea. It's not like God's fulfilling some obligation. It's not like God, somebody said, all right, this is what you've got to do. You're, and God, all right, what do I have to do? See, that's religion. That's what we see our, when we're walk with God. Uh, I've got to pray more. I've got to read my Bible more. I've, when you start saying, I've got to, then it's not coming out of your heart. It's coming out of an obligation. And certainly we're obligated to God. But that's not what He wants it was a wonderful time of sharing gifts Christmas morning, but I wouldn't, would, would be terrible if my grandkids came, came to me and said, you know, Papa, I made this card for you because I had to. My mom and dad says, you better bring this because they've been good to us this year. I had to do this. Here it is, Papa. I mean, I thank you. you know. But our grandkids did things on their own imagination made things. Our granddaughter bought and made for us a family frame, had pictures taken. She designed it. She worked hours to put this thing together. What a blessing that was for us because it came out of her heart. And our grandson did that thing and our granddaughter did because she's not capable to... She wrote cards all over the place but out of her heart. And that's what the blessing is. They can't give me anything that's going to, you know, not going to give me a new car or something like that. And even they did that. But that just did things to me. Well, what do you think it does to God when we think we do things for Him because we have to? And don't, because that's what we think He did with us. See, whatever we do back with Him is a reflection of how we see Him, what we see He's done with us. For herein is love, not that we love God first, but that God first loved us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. If you're struggling with loving people, it's because you really don't know what God's like. Because when you know what He's like, and you've tasted that, unless you refuse to do it, it's just a natural response to give that love away. He chose us. He, he didn't just chose us. He chose us. This is incredible. To be adopted as His sons. He didn't just bring us into heaven so that we could be around Him and He could take care of us and bless Him. He brought us into the family of God to be a joint heir, Romans 8 says, a joint heir, equal heir with Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Just think of what Jesus did. He was the only begotten of the Father. He was the one and only Son, full of all of God's love, all of God's glory, all of God's majesty, and He willingly gave it up, Philippians 2 tells us. He laid aside all that glory, He laid aside all that majesty, He laid aside His power, He laid it all aside, and we talked about this Christmas Eve, and humbled Himself. To become a man. You and I will never know what a step down that was until we get to heaven. 
As the second person of the Godhead, he's not limited by time. He never gets tired. He never gets hungry. Can't be tempted by sin. Nothing limits. Now that he's got flesh on, he's dealing with the same things you and I deal. Hebrews 4 says, He was touched with the infirmities of our flesh. And having been tempted in all ways, he submitted himself to be tempted. Before that, he didn't understand what temptation was in terms of an experience because he couldn't be tempted because temptation is only through our flesh. He willingly did that and walked among us for 33 and plus years. He got tired where in heaven he wasn't tired. He had to put up with people. His own staff sometimes drove him up a wall. How long do I have to put up with you? He would say sometimes. So he'd get frustrated. He'd get tired. He had to eat. This may shock you. He had to go to the bathroom. Jesus had to go to the bathroom. If he was fully human, he did. He had to go to the bathroom. I've never heard that preached in church before. It needs to be preached more often. Well, recognize he became a man. He was still God, but He became a man and dwelt among us. Why? Why did He do all that? So He could die on a cross so we wouldn't have to go to hell. But He didn't just do it for that reason. He did it so that we could be adopted as a son and daughter just like Him. And again, Romans 8 says, so we could be joint heirs. He gave His position up so we could come up and be equal with Him. Now, we're never going to be Him, but we could have the same status with the Father as a joint heir, as a fellow child, as a fellow member of the household of God. This is God's heart. He's willing to give everything so that you can have everything He has. God is. God is. According to the good pleasure of His will. This is His will. This is His plan. This is His idea. We've got to learn to open our minds to receive it. But it was His pleasure that did it. It pleased Him to do this. This wasn't some obligation. This wasn't some guilt thing He went through because He made man and He messed up. Well, I guess I've got to straighten Him out. But it's amazing how we get those kind of thoughts in our head because we think God thinks the way we do. But that's why we have to renew our mind to the way God thinks. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His... See, Paul got a sense of this. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Some translations say freely bestowed upon us His grace. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Excuse me. Go down to verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We understand that according to the riches of His grace. Verse 8. I love this verse. Next verse. Which He made to abound towards us. Some translations say which He lavished upon us. See, I think sometimes the image we have of God is He has a, he has a, a, a medicine jar of grace and an eyedropper. And He goes down, He goes through us and says, all right, let's see, let's see, 
Tim needs, needs this much today, so I'm going to give too much because I've got to have enough for Patricia. And I certainly need some for Richard, so we've got to have some over here for Richard. I got three drops for Richard. Now, let's see if I got enough here. And I got I to go. Jerry's going to need some. So we've got to see. So. And Bruce certainly needs some. Okay. And that's, I got to make sure I got enough here because I got to make sure. No, 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 no. Remember, he's rich. He's rich. And I've taught you before, rich is a relative term. That means you hope your relatives are rich. <laughs> rich is a relative term. Rich is, which means, it, what that means in terms of how much depends on what they got. So if, if we say that, that, I, that I give you out of my riches, it's based on what I've got. But if Bill Gates gives you out of his riches, you have a right to expect a lot more than if I give you out of the riches that's in our, in our bank account. We're talking about God's riches, which he made, which he... Uh, the word actually in, in the Greek language is to super abound. To take something that's abounding and then multiply it. God doesn't add, He multiplies. And to mul- super abound, in, 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 which He made to super abound, He made it to happen. He made, He lavished His grace upon us in all wisdom and prudence. Now go to Romans chapter 8. We could spend a lot of time there. Romans chapter 8. These are scriptures that would be good to go over. We're learning on Wednesday night to meditate, to, and we're going to learn another tr- technique. Romans 8, is that where I told you? This is my favorite verse. I've been healed of this verse. The verse before that says, What shall we say to these things of God's force? Who can be against us? He who did not spare... He who did not spare, that's what we've been looking at. He who did not spare, so God doesn't spare things. If you spare it, that's taking the eyedropper and say, I've got to make sure i got enough. Say, my, we had five boys, and my mother was always making sure we had enough, so she would measure out the ice cream. You know, she would come home with a carton of ice cream, and we would descend on it. You know, and my mother said, no, no, I've got to, I've got to dish this out, because it would all be gone when I got it, because I love ice cream. And, and so she has to measure it out so that all five boys get their fair... She had to, so she had to spare some when she dished mine out. And she had to spare some when she dished my other brothers out. And she wanted a little leftover so that she could have some, and maybe, maybe even if she was really sparing, we could have another helping tomorrow night. So she had to measure out based on what she had. But he did not spare. He did not spare. He did not spare what? His ice cream? No, he did not spare his only begotten son. Paul's doing a comparison here to show us something about God. If he did not withhold, if he, in, in giving what we need, remember, the, remember, the, remember the, 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 the good Samaritan crossed the street to the man that was injured and was half dying, and we saw he didn't measure what, do I, what are the limits of what I have to do for this man. All he knows is because he was, this is the key, he was moved with compassion. You can't do this legalistically. You can't do this because you have to or you're supposed to, or Pastor John preached the message on giving. You can't do it. You've got to be moved 
with compassion. To be moved with compassion, you have to be willing to allow your heart to be touched by somebody else's need. And we'll, we're going to close with that idea. The, remember, the Samaritan was moved with compassion, and because he was moved with compassion, he wasn't concerned with, what's this going to cost me? All he knew is, whatever this man needs, that's what I, whatever I have, and here's my American Express card. When I come back, whatever he's needed, you can charge it to it until he, everything he needs is taken care of. God looked at you and realized, it's going to take my son. I won't spare him. In fact, we didn't have time to go there, but if we kept on going in Genesis, God announced this in chapter 3, verse 15. Right after they sinned, right after they rebelled, God announced what He was going to do. He announced what He was going to do. He says, I'm sending one. You're going you're to bruise His heel, but He's going to crush your neck. He's going to destroy you. If He spared not His own Son, think about what that means to Him. See, we sometimes think God has no emotions or feelings. Where do you think our emotions or feelings come from? Where do you think the emotion of love or the emotion of hurt comes from? Because God, He made us in His image. God is emotional. He doesn't lose control of them, but He has emotions. He was, he was upset that He couldn't bless Israel. When He says, oh, that I, you would have done this. It's not, oh, I wish I'd done this. It's God's heart pouring out. Oh, what I wanted to do for you, but you wouldn't let me. This is his precious son. But he delivered him up, look at this, for us all. I don't care what your self-image is like. Well, I do, but I mean, it doesn't matter what your self-image is like. It doesn't matter what people told you. It doesn't matter whether you thought, you know, you were raised to think you were nothing, were never going to amount to anything, that you had no value. You may have had no value to your parents. You may have had no value to your teachers. You may have had no value to yourself, but you had enough value to him. You had enough value to be him that he delivered his son up for you. He bought you. The measure of what someone's worth is what you're willing, they're willing to pay for you. The measure of your worth to God is the price he was willing to pay for you. Delivered him up for us all. So you're included in us all. You all. If he did that, Paul's just reasoning. How will we not also together with him? Freely, freely, that means no, without cost, give us all things. You know what that means? That means God said, if I gave you my own son, I emptied my pockets when I did that. Whatever else I have, why would you think I would withhold it from you? Why do you think I would withhold from you anything that I have if I've given you for you when you were really messed up, when you were rebellious, when you were living out in the world, if I gave my son's life for you, the most precious thing I have, why do you think I would not freely give you everything else I have? Because that means I would value that more than I valued my son. This is why there's sometimes God asks for something from us, like the tithe. So if you give me your tithe, if you worship me with your tithe, then I know everything else I have is, your, is mine. I have rights to everything. Because after all, you're mine. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. All right. What does that mean? 
Well, that means that he has no limits. This is the next thing I want to say. He has no limits on what part of your life he cares about. I want you to think about that. See, because at least I was taught in growing up in church that God really only cares about spiritual things. So he cares about your spirit, your soul, and where it's going to spend eternity, and that's true. If he's forced to choose between your soul and anything else, he's going to choose the most important part of you. But where does it say he has to, God has to be forced to choose anything? God cares about every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life is important to him. That means you're the material aspect of your life. Whether you have enough to live on, whether you have enough, whether you're blessed. God's not trying to make people rich, but He cares about whether your needs are taken care of and whether you're, you're able to give to other people. He cares about your needs. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does a whole teaching about this. He says, why are you anxious about what you're going to eat or about the clothes you're going to wear? And he doesn't mean, is it the right style? He means whether you're going to have enough. Why are you anxious about the basic needs of your life? Don't you understand that your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air? You don't see them run around anxious and worried about what their next meal is going to come from? He clothes the lilies of the grass with beautiful colors in different parts of the country, you know, the, in the springtime or when, before the harvest, these, or the flowers. Wonderful flowers in springtime, and we've got some that, you know, these beautiful, uh, these beautiful, what are they? Thank you, that's right. <clears throat> um, he, he, he designs these for us to enjoy, and they're here today, and they're already starting to go. They're gone tomorrow. If he takes care of the lilies of the field, and if he takes care of the birds of the air, don't you think he's going to take care of you that you're more valuable to him? And he says, because you know he's going to take care of you, then verse 33 says, Seek ye first, this is Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He cares about every area of your life. And He doesn't just sit in heaven and care about it. He's generous in those areas to take care of your needs. Well, why? How come they're not taken? For the same reason Israel couldn't be blessed, because they limited what God would do for them, what they would believe. And they wouldn't submit to His ways. They wouldn't do it His ways. They wouldn't, see, because He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. See, it takes a step of faith to put God first above your needs. That's what, part of what tithing's all about. Because there are times in your life, now we've gone through times when we, we, we couldn't afford to tithe. But we tithed anyway because I realized I couldn't afford not to. Because I could not afford to not put God first. And it was an incredible act of faith. But we've never, ever gone without. Never, ever gone without. Why? Because when you put God first, it's not just some law. God's saying, all right, give me what I want. It's, but it's a principle that when you put God first, you now put your trust in the one who's not holding anything back from you. But when you don't put him first, you're saying to God, I don't trust you. I trust me more than I trust you. And you're limiting what he, he'll try to bless you, but you're, you're, you're closing the opening. You're closing the opening through which He can take care of you. You're limiting what He can do in your life. But He wants to. He wants to. He wants to. He wants to. 
He cares about your physical and He cares about your health. There's teachings out there that, well, you know, that, that, that go, yes, God will heal our bodies, but that's when we get to heaven. But I can't find that in my Bible. What I find is Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus never refused to heal anybody. Everyone, everyone that came and asked him, he healed. There was one woman he said no to, and all he was doing was drawing her faith out of her. Because when she came back to him, he said, I don't care if it's just the crumbs of the table, at least the dogs yet to eat that. He said, woman, great is your faith, your daughter is healed. There were also people healed that didn't ask him. Nowhere in I, can I find in my Bible where it said, in fact, Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. So God cares, but, but what limits us is, well, that's not spiritual. God only takes care of us spiritually, and that idea originated with Greek philosophers, not God. This is why we need to read our Bible to find out what God's like. All right, now, I wish I could spend more time on that, and maybe we will later this year. So if this is what God is like, and we're called to be witnesses of Him, then we have to learn to be, allow Him to be generous through us. Because what we're learning. To be a witness of Christ and of God means we have to allow Him to operate through us. But we limit what He can do through us because of our mental expectations and the willingness of our will. I'll give you some ideas here about what God wants to do through you. We're talking about generosity. He wants us to be generous with our resources, because after all, they're not ours anyway. We're just stewards. You understand, you don't own anything. I don't own anything. We're stewards of everything we have. Our time, we're stewards of the money. We're stewards of our... Your life is not something you own. You're stewards of it. And so God wants... A, he'll be generous with His stewards, but He wants us to be generous with whatever it is. That means our time... Are we willing to be generous with our time for people? Are we willing to be generous with our financial resources? Are we willing to be generous with just the sphere of our life? I got a text before Christmas, I think Pastor Ray got it too, from Lafayette Scales, quoting out of Psalm 23 that made a table in the presence of our enemy. He says, who are you willing to invite to your table? He talks about what goes on at a table, but the table's not just, you know, what we did at Christmas time, the table of your life. Who are you willing to let into your life, the, influ the influence, the sphere of your life? Who are you willing? Is it the stranger? Because in Hebrews, we're not going to turn there, but Hebrews chapter three, 13 talks about in the beginning that, that, that therefore walk in the love of Christ. And then it says, we are to entertain strangers. We're to open the, our lives to people. Strangers is somebody we don't know, that we're not familiar with. Maybe somebody we know, but we're not comfortable with them, because they're not like us. They may have, be of a different political persuasion. They may have a different view of God. They may be in, in a different church that doesn't believe some of the same as we do. But, so there are different kinds of strangers. It's not, strangers not just somebody you don't know. He says, because by entertaining strangers, some of you have actually unbeknownst entertained angels. See, God can come into your life in form. We talked about this when, uh, Christmas Eve. There were people that missed God coming because they weren't looking for Him in the form of a baby. 
They were looking for a king coming, born in a manger. So they missed him when he came. They walked by him and missed him. They didn't realize who he was. The religious leaders missed him because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. But we can do that with God coming into our lives through strangers, opportunities to minister to somebody. Little things sometimes it is. There was a, uh, our grand, oldest granddaughter uh, came down to spend Christmas with us and she came down by this Uber thing, which is, some of you are familiar with Uber. So we had a driver that drove her down on Christmas Day and I'm pretty sure he wasn't a Christian. So he's out there while, you know, they're do- greeting everybody because he was going to take somebody somewhere else. And I said, you know what, I'm going to give him some Christmas cookies. We certainly had enough. So I went and brought some Christmas cookies out to him. When I looked at him, it was clear he was not a Christian. He was from another country that was not Christian. And I just looked at him and I said, thank you for bringing my granddaughter down here safely. You know, you know, Merry Christmas. And there's not much, but here's some Christmas cookies for you enjoying the trip back. And his, fa- his smile went from ear to ear. His face just lit up. He says, thank you. God bless you. That's just a couple of Christmas cookies. And, you know, it certainly wasn't the Christmas. It was the thought to be thoughtful of somebody. And that's not my general way of doing things because I'm so focused on what's got to be done to just be sensitive of people around me is not some of you I may walk past on a Sunday morning it's not personal I'm at work here so I'm thinking this has got to be done I've got to remember what this is supposed to happen so if I walk past you it's not because I don't care about you it's because I'm focused on something so that was not in normal character for me but this spirit of generosity has been meditating on it it's like you know what I need to think of him strangers but you know, the Bible says when you entertain strangers, sometime you're going to actually be you're entertaining being hospitable to God. Strangers. Strangers. So here's the challenge. Are you willing to open your heart? Are you willing to open your life? Are you willing to open your house in some cases? It doesn't mean it's for everybody. Are you willing to open areas of your life you haven't been willing to open to allow God to be generous not only to you in those areas, but through you in those areas? Open your mouth wide, God says, and I want to fill it to overflowing so that we give out of the abundance of the overflow that God brings into our lives. That's the blessed life. The blessings only come as they flow in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today to take the words that we've heard, especially the scriptures that we've heard. We ask you to take them, Father. And for the precious Holy Spirit to begin to make them real in our hearts. There are people, of, some of us here this morning, Father, that are struggling in areas where we're in lack. It may have been in our finances. Some people may be really up against it, even this week, not knowing where they're going to be able to live come the beginning of next year. There may be some, Father, that there is just no hope for their physical condition right now. The diagnosis says, this is what you have, and we don't have an answer for that. It may be that there are people that are just hurting emotionally, people struggling with depression. Some people struggling, they're just alone. They don't have any friends. Some people just feel worthless. Wherever it is, we know, first of all, because you love each one of us, you know where we are in our life. You know what's going on in our lives. You know those areas of our life where there's a need. Father, help us through what we've heard today by the Holy Spirit 
to realize that you not only want to meet those needs, you want to meet them in an abundance, with an overflow. You want to flood us with your love, your grace, your healing, your provision. Help us to open our minds, the eyes of our understanding, Father. Strengthen us by your Spirit and our inner man that we might come to know the breadth and width and height and depth and to know by experience the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus, that we may be available for you to give it away through us. Father, as we begin to move out of this Christmas season, may we not let go of what we've seen and learned and experienced through this time of giving. In Jesus' name.